Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to the Day 4 Rogers Cup episode of Matchpoint Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. You can find us on Twitter at MatchpointCan. You can find me at Ben Lewis SN590, and you can find Mike at Pro Tennis Fan. Well, we do have plenty of action to get to. We will hear from world number three and ace queen Carolina Pliskova on this episode. We'll also hear from one of the best photographers in tennis known as Jimmy48. You can find his work on Twitter at JJLovesTennis. But first, let's start with the Mississauga native Bianca Andreescu, still pushing on in Toronto, this time with a big three-set win over Daria Kasakina. Great tennis, two great matches, first over Jeannie and then over Kasukina. My one concern, Mike, is physically, how is she going to hold up for this tournament? Yeah, I wonder how Bianca kind of envisioned her return to the game going. Uh, I mean, obviously, she'll take the two victories, which I think in some ways is maybe more than we would have predicted for someone who's been away from competition for so long. Um, They haven't been easy. She spent a heck of a lot of time on court between the match against Jeannie, which was more competitive than we thought, and then against Kasakina, she was out there for nearly two hours and 40 minutes uh, on uh, Wednesday. But uh, the good news is, physically, although she did seem to be um, you know, tired and, and laboring a little bit in between points on the court, and she was rotating the shoulder around as well, which when I saw that for the first time, I thought, oh no, here we go again. Mm-hmm. But in post-match press, she said, uh, first of all, that the shoulder rotations, just loosening it up, keeping it loose, uh, no pain in the shoulder. And then she also had her thigh taped up, and she said that was just precautionary as well. So aside from being fatigued, which I think we can forgive her for, yeah. uh, getting back into match conditioning, there's no pain, and she should be good to go on Thursday against Kiki Burdens. Yes, and uh, what, what I liked, I think, in the win over Kasukina was uh, digging in deep with that competitive fire, really. She was down 5-3 in that final set, uh, kind of on the brink of elimination, but she has more weapons on the court, in my opinion, than Kasukina. That forehand is a bit more power- powerful, and she really trusted uh, her shots at the, at the end of the match, which was, was crucial. And she didn't fall apart like Kasukina did, I have to say it. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, she really did. I love 40 break, right? And, and when Break she's above. serving for it at 5-4 yes. in the third set and hands two double faults over to Andreescu, yeah. it's almost like she's handing the, the match over to her. So you got to take that into account also. Uh, I think another good positive note for Bianca is that both players she's faced so far have very different games. You've got Jeannie Bouchard, who's going to go out there and try and blast her way through the match. And you've got Kasakina, who, as one reporter mentioned at the end of this match, kind of similar to Bianca in that there's a lot more variety in the game. So good to have Andreescu have a chance to sort of face some some different types of, of games out there as she progresses through and and I think regardless of what happens against burdens if she ends the tournament healthy this has been a successful week um, from what I was expecting for her. Yes, absolutely. And we have to understand uh, facing the fifth seed in Kiki Burton's is going to be a, a much bigger challenge than anything she's faced so far at this tournament. Burton's coming off of finals at the Palermo Open. We've seen her play great tennis at Grand Slams in the past and play really well on hard courts this time last year in the summer hard court swing as well. So she's uh, a definite threat and will be the favorite in that match. But Bianca is pushing on through in Toronto. 
We'll look at some other uh, results on the women's side. I, I will say the world number two, Naomi Osaka, got her first match under her belt and uh, positive for her perhaps that it was pretty short. She won the first set 6-2 before Tatiana Maria retired. So she is moving on. And then we had a bunch of tight three setters today. Halep kind of escaping by the skin of her teeth over Jennifer Brady. That was kind of an intriguing match on center court. Yeah, we've had plenty of upsets already in this tournament. And today there were moments where it looked like there'd be several other top seeds uh, joining uh i mean plishkova had a battle against allison risk risk who's had a fantastic summer winning grass court tournament going to the quarters at wimbledon she's really feeling her game right now that was a tough one to get through uh halep as you mentioned had her hands full with brady uh svitolina was pushed to three sets by siniakova and belinda bencic who won the rogers cup in 2015 also in a really tough one against julia gurges i mean some of these matches we've mentioned uh just phenomenal tennis encounters to have in the second round of a tournament and then others like like Brady was uh, didn't see that one coming but again that transition from hey I'm winning Wimbledon for Simona Halep to all of a sudden back on hard courts there's understandably going to be a bit of a, uh, a hiccup for some of these players. Yeah, and Jennifer Brady really putting her on high alert uh, right in the get-go in that match. And Halep seemed to gain control in that third set. She was up for love, but the American uh, would not go away, hitting some big serves, and her forehand was sharp as well. But Simona Halep, fan favorite here. Romanian crowd. So out, many Romanians out, in the crowd. Out and about as always. So she's a huge fan favorite. She's won here uh, twice. She's won the Rogers Cup. So uh, still in contention there. Uh, Carolina Pliskova, who you mentioned, uh, I had the good fortune of speaking with her this week. And uh, one storyline I should mention that that world number one number one ranking is certainly up for grabs, especially with Ashley Barty out. Pliskova has a chance to reclaim that world number one. I think there, that's one question on her minds. Another question is, can she be a future Grand Slam champion? Well, let's have a listen and see what she had to say. Okay. Okay, we are on Matchpoint Canada. Ben Lewis joined by world number three, Carolina Pliskova. Thanks uh, so much for taking the time today. Really appreciate that. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I just wanted to start now, uh, for, for those who don't know, you've been dubbed the Ace Queen uh, as a nickname, and it's a well-deserved nickname because you lead the tour in aces this season, 346. For you, when did you develop such a powerful serve, and is that a nickname you enjoy? I mean, um, of course I enjoy it because the fans made it, so it's not something what I would really choose, but uh, because I won a couple years in a row, um, so I always uh, have the most aces in in the last couple of years. One year it was, I think, my partner, Julia Gerges, so it was, it's uh, somebody who I know as well. But I'm just happy that my service uh, is that good, that it's working, and um, that I can you know, win a lot of matches with that. And of course, if you see me, I'm quite tall, so... Uh, it's quite obvious that the serve is going to be great, but of course there's a lot of tall girls and the serve is not that good. So I think the technique, since I was small, was very good. So that's why it's working. And uh, you would have developed, obviously, that technique in, in Czech Republic. And, and it's a nation right now that seems to be churning out so many fantastic tennis players. We've seen the results in Fed Cup winning eight of the last uh, nine titles there. What do you think uh, makes Czech Republic as, as a country such a great tennis nation? And from your training there, what did you take from that? I mean, it's tough to say. I think, uh, to be honest, we have just uh, great clubs, uh, great coaches, because, of course, when you start, you don't go really, um, you know, somewhere else. You just stay in Czech Republic when you're small. So we grew up in, with Czech tennis, and there were so many good players in the past. So I think just the history of the tennis is uh, is huge, and that's why maybe also the motivation. And there is also now I can see that um, all the clubs are quite full of kids. 
So of course they want to play, they want to be like us, and there is Petra, there is me. Now Barbara was uh, doing good in in Wimbledon, so I think there is a lot of lot of good players in our country. I don't really see the reason why, but uh, doesn't always have to be that we have Czech coaches because right now I don't have anymore. But uh, the tennis is quite huge there. Well, that's a good transition to, to ask you about your coach because I know uh, I wouldn't call it a big change, but maybe, maybe just a transition to having Conchita Martinez sort of as that full-time coach. And I know she, she's worked with you for some time. She's worked with you at the U.S. Open. How, how great is it to have her in your corner and uh, her style and personality? What, what does she bring to your team, which really helps? I mean, we're going to celebrate a year on US Open because we started last year US Open and I think we did just great job and we just, um, you know, I feel like we are improving from week from week or from uh, from each tournament, which which is positive and all the um, exercises which is giving me, uh, I feel like they're helping, which is important and uh, the communication is good, which is always the key of uh, of player and coach and I feel like uh, she has a lot of experience on tour so that's why uh, she was the choice for me and I'm just happy that it's still there. And it seems like a, a good choice. You've had some solid results this season as well. You've won in Italy. You got your uh, grass court title uh, on the UK, sort of winning on all surfaces. Does that make you excited for uh, kind of the North American hard court swing and, and what sort of damage do you think you can do here? I mean, still hardcore, doesn't matter which tournaments I won this year. I won uh, Rome, so far the, the biggest this year, but uh, still hardcore is my favorite and I just feel uh, more confident and more just I enjoy a little bit more the tennis. So, um, you know, I never played really good in Canada. I don't know why, maybe because it's the first week after like a couple of weeks off uh, from tournaments after Wimby, but I want to change it. I'm feeling great now. I came a little bit earlier before tournament, so let's see how it's going to go. Fantastic. And uh, just, just last question. Um, we saw you make such a great run at the uh, Australian Open, reaching the semifinals, coming back uh, for a great victory over Serena Williams. Do you think that can be sort of a signature win for you in your, your career of taking, I guess, sort of that one final step and, uh, and, and winning a Grand Slam? I think I'm every time getting just uh, closer, closer. I'm just, you know, trying always to use the chance to go uh, second week, which I almost always do. And then um, you can face tough players. So it also depends a little bit on luck, on the draw. And then I feel like I'm always super close. Australia was close because then I lost to Osaka. She won, you know. So um, I feel like I can beat good players, uh, maybe a little bit more luck. And um, I feel like I can do it. Fantastic. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. There it is, world number three, Karolina Pliskova, uh, the ace queen. She leads the WTA in aces this season. She will face Annette Kontavite in her next match at Rogers Cup. She acknowledged that she hasn't played well in Canada in the past and is is eager to turn that around and really doesn't make any sense that she hasn't played here. Uh, hard courts really suit her game. Yeah, two years ago when she was here in 2017, she was the number one ranked player in the world. And I think one of those players we've talked about, those that can handle that pressure and those that struggle with it, I don't think she ever seems super comfortable to have that uh, that title of being the number one in the world. Uh, but she's still in the top of the WTA Tour and one of those players that I would put at the top of talented but hasn't had that slam success yet yeah but certainly going to be a contender at the u.s open as we approach uh, some of the things from that interview with you that really uh you know struck out at me one is just her talking about the depth of czech tennis and i mean we're coming into a, a new level of success here in canada 
And on the women's tour, wouldn't we love it if we could get to even half of what the Czech Republic seems to have? Because they've got their A squad, as we saw in Fed Cup earlier this year. They've got a B and a C squad that are still supremely talented. A lot of youth mixed in there with some veterans as well. And and those like Pliskova who are sort of in the, the mid-range. So whatever they're doing in the Czech Republic obviously is working and and many other countries would love to follow in their footsteps yeah it's an absolute powerhouse what eight of the last nine fed cup titles patrick avidova in the mix and then they have a great doubles contingent as well barbara stritzkova leading there and she played so fantastic at wimbledon as well so a very very strong uh country in terms of a tennis nation we did see three-time champion serena williams back in toronto which was fantastic and uh she got through her first match as well defeating elise merton six 6363. She was pretty candid describing her performance as sluggish, but it, it felt like fans watching her maybe for the first time or maybe if you've seen Serena many times uh, before, they were impressed. And, uh, you know, I, I think anytime we see Serena on court it, live, it's impressive. Absolutely. And I mean, I've been following her all week in practice. And sluggish is a word that I definitely would have used to describe how she's looked in practice this week. Mm-hmm. I think she definitely took it up a couple of notches tonight because she looked pretty good to me. She was just crushing some of those second serves that Mertens was handing over to her late in the match in particular. And uh, good to get her back out on the hard courts. As she mentioned, she hasn't had that many hard court tournaments this year. And this is her first non-Grand Slam tournament since uh, the middle of May. So it's been a while. And, uh, and to me, she really looked much sharper than what I expected and much sharper than, than what we've seen in the lead up. So if she continues to play like this and makes adjustments, obviously she thinks she's still got a, a ways to go, then uh, look out. This could be a, a pretty dangerous week from Serena. Yes, it certainly could. And, and the draw is shaping up for her pretty nicely, at least for her next match, round of 16, Ekaterina Alexandrova. She'll be a, a massive favorite in, in that one. Uh, we want to see that encounter with Naomi Osaka which would be unbelievable would be a rematch of the u.s open uh just less than a year ago so that would be fantastic to see we'll transition to the men's side you are listening to match point canada you can find us on twitter at match point can and we have daily podcast episodes throughout rogers cup on the men's side dennis Shapovalov. uh he had the great win to to kick off his campaign in montreal such a crowd favorite there runs into the second seed dominic team losing in three sets but i thought he put up a heck of a fight and uh i i really think this is a positive tournament for him as he moves his season on and kind of turns a leaf yeah that's a tough draw for him getting teams so early in the tournament the number two seed team who's so good on on you know clay and hard courts and, um, you know, some might have thought, well, maybe Shapovalov can kind of conjure up some of that magic that he did from two years ago. But I think that's probably asking a lot. You're not going to play at the same level of, you know, a uh, high play every time you play an event. And things were quite different two years ago. Also, I don't think there was that much pressure on him two years ago, right? Zero. He was just a kid. He was just, you know, 18 years old, hadn't had his coming out moment yet. He was playing with house money. Now it's different because you're going into the event and people recognize you and people know who you are and there's this expectation, oh, he's going to do it again. He's going to have another deep run. But I think from our perspective, just the scoreline, you know, 6-4-3-6-6-3 for team, encouraging that Chapo was able to push it that far. Yep. You watched more of that one than I did. What were some of the things you saw from him that stood out? Well, certainly the the wild atmosphere and, and him really wearing his heart on his sleeve. I, I love the show of emotion uh, when he took the second set, sort of gestured to the crowd with 
with an enormous fist pump. That was great. He was fired up throughout the entire match, even in the third set, really pumping himself up. Uh, a lot of gestures, just trying to stay focused, locked in. And it was just a couple points here and there. They were tied 3-3 in that third set on serve and a team found an opening and came through but uh definitely a good tournament in my eyes for Denis Shapovalov who coming in here had dropped 9 of 11 virtually didn't win really anything on clay and then Wimbledon was of course an early exit to Ricardus Barrancas so uh, I think he's getting the summer hardcourt swing off to a nice start hopefully the draw in Cincinnati will be a lot more favorable uh, where maybe he has a chance to win two maybe three matches and fear not because we still do have a Canadian who's left in singles in yes, Montreal we well we were guaranteed to have at least one because Felix Ojealiassim was taking on Milos Raonic in a much anticipated second round match unfortunately it didn't have the ending that uh, anyone would have liked to have seen as Milos had to retire uh, he lost the first set 6-3 Milos then won the second set 6-3 but had to retire with back issues and that's the last way you want to see Raonic head out of the tournament here in Canada with yet another injury yeah it's it's not really a, a victory for Canada that we really should be celebrating Felix Ojeali it seems it's fantastic that he's still in the tournament moving into the round of 16 but I could see the sort of wretched face of despair on Milos Raonic late in that second set when he was uh uh, even up 5-3 and was able to finish it out and hold for 6-3 and then sort of packed it in. He had just had a medical timeout the previous changeover and uh, due to his back. And uh, I spoke with Tom Tebbett earlier in the week and Milos Raonic had been candid that he basically hasn't been pain-free the entire season. Has kind of been balancing, dealing with injuries throughout the year. We saw the conditioning and probably a back issue creep up at Wimbledon. It's just so unfortunate when you have a player of his talent who's been world number three and made the finals of a grand slam before to have his body let let him down and really that's been the topic of discussion for Milos Raonic for the better part of you know four years now and there's definitely been events this year where sure he's gotten through them and even a year ago you know that he's gotten through at the slams and whatnot but finally ends up losing and you think well what was wrong he got through the whole match he couldn't have been injured but he is dealing with things on a pretty constant basis yeah and just this year alone couldn't finish in Miami, uh, gave a second round walkover, couldn't finish in Stuttgart in the semifinals, gave a walkover to Felix, and and now as well having to retire mid-match in Montreal. That's three times this year. In 2018, there were three events also that he couldn't complete after he had started them. Uh, things are not getting better, unfortunately, for Milos, and the years are starting to add up. He might only be 28, 29 years old, but his body seems far older than that. Yes, uh, my fingers are crossed at least that he can get healthy for the U.S. Open, but it's not worth it to push it if he's not feeling right. I certainly expect him to withdraw from Cincinnati. That would be a big mistake if he plays there. Uh, but we just have not seen you know, consistent health across the calendar year for Milos Raonic. I know he is diligent with his team trying to solve these issues, trying to figure out uh, a schedule he can work around and make sure his body stays right. But uh, it just hasn't happened with consistency. Yeah, we wish him a speedy recovery. And meanwhile, Felix Ojeali-Yassim uh, moves on to take on uh, Karin Hachinov, which is going to be a, a stiff test as well for him. Uh, this is going to be a great battle between two of the young uh, up-and-coming players between Canada and Russia, two countries that have uh, an enormous amount of young talent. Uh, I can see future Davis Cups for both nations mm, yep. uh, down the road. And uh, and this battle should certainly give fans in Montreal a, uh, a real treat. Yeah, Karen Kachinov, Hatchinov, I should say. Uh, we got... Uh 
a, a great chance to watch him actually last year in Toronto, uh, reaching the semifinals before bowing out to Rafael Nadal. And he did not go out without a fight. Uh, he's one of the hardest hitters on tour. The forehand is an enormous. The backhand is also very, very solid. To me, he's kind of a well-rounded physical player, a little bit like Felix. They maybe operate with their footwork, uh, you know, and their size is different. Hatchinoff is bigger, obviously. Felix uh, still has room to fill out. He's still just 18 years old, but uh, they're not uh, that much different, really, in, in their makeup on the court. So I think this is going to be a very competitive physical match. Lots of good stuff coming up in Montreal and Toronto as the week progresses. This is our, what, our fourth episode now? Yeah. How are you holding up? Oh, we're getting there. This has been this has been busy week. Uh, I guess we're you know at the halfway point now, uh, which is which is great because you're really getting to into the heart, the the crux of the draws here, round of sixteen, men's and women's women's fields, and every match uh, we're going to get from this point forward is going to be fantastic. And uh, it's been great, really, that the WTA has been so accommodating. We've we've had a chance to speak with some players, and I have nothing but great things to say about every player we've had a chance to talk to. Yeah, we've got some good ones coming up that we've got in the uh, Match Point Canada vault at the moment. So yeah. we're excited to bring those to you and some interesting tennis personalities as well this week. And one of those is my favorite tennis photographer, uh, Jimmy48, who most people, I'm sure, uh, would recognize. And uh, he primarily shoots for the WTA Tour, so women's tennis. And he has just uh, come a a long way in in the last couple of years, really shot up and risen to prominence. The players know him. The tour obviously loves his work. Tennis fans love his work. We retweet his stuff regularly and and often get to use some of his work as well. So it was kind of neat to have him in and open up a little bit about how things are from his perspective covering the sport of tennis. So Jimmy, tell us how long uh, have you been covering professional tennis for and how did you get your start in the sport? Uh... I've been covering tennis professionally since 2013. Before I did it more as a hobby, I started watching tennis in 2009. Actually, my start in tennis is somewhat unlikely because no one in my family or my friends even liked tennis. I had no prior tennis knowledge until I turned into tennis in the TV and became a fan. And I used to be a photographer in a different field. I used to uh, shoot motorsports, motor racing. And I stopped for a while. And when I started getting into tennis at some point, I thought, why not combine the two passions? And I took my camera to a tennis tournament and started shooting. And now that you're into it uh, so in-depth, I assume uh, there's no going back. Is that right? You're, you're set now with, uh, with covering and shooting uh, professional tennis? Yeah, yeah there's, there's literally no going back. This is all I do. All I shoot is women's tennis. This is all I want to do. And there's no going back. I'm where I want to be. Right on. And I have to say, uh, at JJ Loves Tennis, I think it's one of my favorite handles on Twitter in terms of just access to, to fantastic shots, fantastic photography, uh, a lot of great women's tennis shots. Uh, obviously, you're here at Rogers Cup. What's your experience been like in the past covering events in Canada? And uh, how do you enjoy covering Rogers Cup? Oh, I love the Rogers Cup. Everything's so well run and every, everybody's so friendly. I guess that's your trademark thing. It's a cliche, <laughs> but still, it's true. But it's true. Yeah, Canadians are so nice. And the, the interesting thing about the Rogers Cup is the first year I went was 2014. I went to Montreal. And the two events are so different and so unique. Like there was a discussion earlier today on social media whether it's actually one event or like two different events and I would be one to say it's actually it's two different events because it's so the tournament side is so different the cities are so different both heads has 
its unique vibe and it's it makes for such an interesting experience to come here every year. The debate right now is who's the defending champion? Is it Simona Halep because she won in Montreal last yep. year? Or is it Alina Svitolina because the last time it was in Toronto, she won? But uh, you like that variety. That must be unique compared to other stops on the tour, I guess. Of course, you, because every other stop we go to, you, you go to the same tournament site each year. And this is the only one event we only go to every two years, basically, like in terms of the event. So there's, this, is, this is very unique. And you also... You kind of want to get a bit more enjoyment out of it because, you know, it's it will be two years until you come back. So that's what definitely makes it a bit special. Now, for me, I, I lack a lot of experience in photography, uh, just in general life, let alone in tennis. So what what is your process, I guess, when you're heading out to the courts and, and capturing that perfect shot? Or are there scenarios you're looking for in a match, certain moments that, that you're aiming to capture? Or does it just sort of present itself sometimes and, and you notice? Of course, much of it is just reacting to what happens. But of course, there's sort of a bread and butter aspect to it. If you go to a match, you need a few backhands, you need a few serves, you need a few forehands just to have the basics covered. The variety. Yes. But mostly you react to what's happening and all you want to do is you want to make sure you capture the moment and you capture what's happening. And ideally, you can sum up a match in what happened in like two or three or four essential photos. So a good match is where I walk away with like five or six images and people look at those photos and go like, oh, I understand what what happened. What are your favorite or what is your favorite sort of environment to be in to take those photos? For me personally, I like going out there and, and I'm no real photographer. People, you know, who've seen my work probably know that, but I try hard. Uh, but I really enjoy going out to the practice courts where you have those sort of fun moments between players who are practicing, not in the heat of competition, and you see more the human element. Um, how do you feel about sort of that environment or is there another sort of part of covering tennis and shooting tennis that, uh, that you like even even better? No, that's definitely one of the things I like the most. Everything that boils down, as you said, to the human element. And the practice courts are a good example because I think this is something like many photographers overlook because at first glance it has no commercial value because people always go out to shoot the matches. But if you want to tell the stories, the relationships between the players, it's it's the practice courts and it's the off-court stuff and the moments where the players are with, with themselves and not as necessarily on the court and feel like the heat of battle. So I, I enjoy that, that a lot. And it's, it, it's a great, that's why it never gets boring because you have so much variety. You have like the straight down match court action and like the big final and the big moment. And then there's, there's like the, the quiet things. And sometimes you walk away with a great photo of a situation where you didn't expect anything great to happen. Like for, for example, I, I take lots of photos uh, of the players uh, before the matches in the tunnel when they're like in the zone and they're ready to step out on court and you can feel the intensity. And in, in Stuttgart, um, before the semifinal between Petra Kvitova and Kiki Burtons, usually the players are like super locked in, like they listen to the music and they barely see you and or anybody else and they're just waiting to go out on the court and focus on the match. And these two, all of a sudden, like literally a minute before the match, these two just started chatting and laughing. Mm -hmm with each other before this big match this exactly like, like unscripted it was, moment it was literally a minute before they went out on court so that was a very special moment and those were like special photos because if you're a follower of tennis if you look at it you instantly realize that's a special moment because usually that doesn't happen and that's pretty much that's the goal always to capture things that capture the imagination of the fans and give them access to things they might not see otherwise and just to tell a tell a story and, and that's what I think great photography obviously is about is storytelling and uh, 
through those relationships, uh, you, I'm, I'm sure you've met many players over the course of your time on the WTA. Uh, do they do they know and recognize you as, as one of these photographers? Yes, yes, yeah. they do by now. I mean, it goes like I travel as much as the players. We literally like if you look at like the standard top 15 player, I think we pretty much have the, the, the exact same schedule because I cover all the Grand Slams. I cover all the big premier tournaments. So they literally see me every week. And at some point, it's just a familiarity that develops just because you're always there. Hmm. Now, you mentioned the, the, the longevity of the tennis season. It seems like it never ends at some point in time. And if it's that way for the players, as you mentioned, it's that way for those who work in the sport as well, like yourself and other photographers. Uh, what, what do you do to pace yourself throughout the long season with all the travel and the uh, packing up and, and going as you're going to be leaving us, unfortunately, in a couple of days for Cincinnati? How do you best deal with that uh, over, over your time in, in the sport? It's, uh, when I started doing tournaments, when I worked freelance, you you try very hard to cram as much as possible into every day. You want to shoot every match. You want to be the last one to leave. And if you're, if you're on, on tour all the time, it just becomes about like managing your time and making sure you have energy at the end of the week and you, you just pace yourself. And the traveling, it really it just boils down. And the players, I'm, I'm assuming, can, can confirm that. It just boils down to experience. Like, literally, I just have to look at my open suitcase and know if anything's missing <laughs> just because it's the same process every week when I pack. So it's it's not as as exciting as it, if you're flying to Australia for the first time. It's very exciting. If you do it for the sixth or seventh time, it's just routine. But that's a good thing because you don't want to be excited all the time. It has to become it has to become a routine at, at a certain point. Right. Well, there's absolutely nothing routine about your photos. We love uh, seeing them on Twitter. We love that you've shared some of them with us on the podcast. And I know me personally with some of my work over the last couple of years, it's been really nice to sort of get to know you as well on Twitter and social media. And then, you know, every every two years, anyways, connect uh, in person. So uh, thank you very much for taking the time. And, and Jimmy, where can fans and people who are interested in your work, where can they go to see some of your photos? Uh, they can, of course, uh, primarily see it on the WTA website, and they can see it on my Twitter, which is JJ Loves Tennis, and on my Instagram, which is Jimmy48Tennis. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Jimmy, and uh, all the best the rest of the season. Thank you. So there you have it, folks. Jimmy48, uh, fantastic tennis photographer and all-around great guy. You can just tell the passion that he has covering the sport. Uh, even though, uh, as he admitted, he only really started watching it about 10 years ago, he's really come up to speed and just has a great sense of individual player uh, personalities and has an ability to make them feel so comfortable that they open up and give him some of those great reactions in practice, off the court, in the tunnel before heading out to the match, pre-tournament press and stuff like that. Uh, you can see why the WTA has leaned on him as their go-to guy. Yeah, I think uh, he tells the importance that a photograph does tell a story. And I love when he said he, he can kind of capture the essence of a match and what transpired within that match with even just three or four shots. You, you capture the right moments. And, uh, you know, he, he's one of the absolute best in the business. Uh, I'm. I don't have that eye of photography. I really, really don't. So I really appreciate when uh, 
when I, I stumble across photos from from Jimmy Forty Eight, he's definitely worth a follow on Twitter at JJ Loves Tennis. And really, great photography is art. So you know, I'm trying my best. Okay, when it comes to photography, I think you take fantastic photos too. I appreciate that. I've got to learn a little bit from him though, because you know he knows how to take just the right number. Mm-hmm. I took twenty seven hundred photos today. <laughs> okay, so yeah. you can imagine how long it's going to take me in editing. I've got to learn that sometimes less is more. Yes, uh, but but that's a process, and uh, you're getting better each and every day which is fantastic i hope we're getting better each and every day on the podcast this has been day four and we got a few more to go as we work towards the final in rogers cup and obviously with the eye on coop rogers in montreal as well you've been listening to match point canada i'm ben lewis he's mike mcintyre until next time Every time that I